All right. All right, so we are, uh, thank you for joining us online if you're tuning in, and uh, we are continuing on with our questions and answers, this catechism classes that uh, both the kids in the back are learning, and then we here as the adults want to sort of dive into it a little bit deeper. And we are exploring a very vast subject, and that is the subject of the Trinity. Um, the Trinity is a significant Christian doctrine. It is an essential Christian doctrine, uh, but it is also a very mystical and mysterious Christian doctrine. Um, and again, we, we've discussed how this really should not surprise us as we consider the God who is. There is going to be a limitation just from the very basis that He is creator, we are creature, He is greater than we are, we are made in His image, He is not made in ours. And so we should expect that we're not going to be able to understand all of these things. And, and in particular, when we speak of the Trinity, it is a hard thing to understand because we are bound to this idea of, of singularity. We are one person uh, and we are independent of other people. But yet the scriptures clearly just define for us and describe for us that God is three persons, but there are only, is only one God. So just to quickly review what we've looked at so far, what does the word Trinity mean in relation to God? The word Trinity describes God as one in three persons. All three are fully God. And if we have time, uh, we'll perhaps jump into and talk a little bit more about the necessity that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal, that uh, not one is not more God than the other. I think it can, it can be easy for us to sort of fall into that type of idea, but yet uh, the scriptures are very clear that they are all equally God. And again, this idea of the Trinity shows us that there is no one like our God. Jeremiah 10, 6 through 7, There is none like you, O Lord. You're great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And so again, this, this complete difference, this, this uh, idea that God is wholly other than us comes through in this verse. And then the last time we discussed this, a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, how long has God been a trinity? This, is, the, is the trinity something that he has had from all eternity? Or is the trinity something that, that came about uh, through the incarnation or through the giving of the Holy Spirit? And if so, the question is, has God always been a trinity? And the answer is, of course, yes, God has been and always will be a trinity. And we base that on the fact that God never changes. If God is at any time a trinity, then he is at all times a trinity. Otherwise, there would be this idea that he has changed. And so we discussed this particular issue and, and discussed the idea that the Son, Jesus Christ, did not become God uh, the Son did not become God in the Incarnation, but the Son always was. And the same thing regarding the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit came when he was sent to Christ or came when he sent upon believers, but the Holy Spirit has always existed. And we looked at a number of different passages uh, that describe that. But again, John 17, 24, we see this connection of, of Christ praying to the Father and describing how he is fully God. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation 
of the world. And we, we discuss the, the necessity of this eternal idea that God loved the Son before the world existed. So that implies the existence of the Son. It implies uh, this, this, continual, this continual relationship, this eternal relationship. So we discussed that last time. So all that's review to get us to our question for this evening. And this question asks, why must we believe that God is one in three persons, each of whom are fully God? So let's, let's begin with this question. Must we believe that God is one in three persons? Must we believe in the Trinity? All right, I heard some yeses. Why? Why is it essential to believe in the Trinity? All right, it's the essence of God. Um, if, if God is a Trinity, yet we think or conceive of him as something other than a Trinity, and there is only one God, then whatever we're thinking of that is not a Trinity, is that truly God? No. So in one respect, it comes down to the very basis of the very nature and character of who God is. Yes, we must understand that God is a trinity. And you think of any other reasons why it's essential that we understand God is a trinity. Okay. So, right. So, so for, for our knowledge of him to be correct, we must understand him as he has revealed himself. Um, he reveals himself as a trinity, so we must accept him as a trinity. Um, there, there are a, a lot of other reasons why. One in particular that I find very interesting is God has always existed to live in fellowship. So even before anything else was created, there was fellowship in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and really what salvation is, is it is our ability to enter into fellowship with God, this Trinitarian fellowship, not by becoming God ourselves, but by being united to Christ. That's what Jesus prays in John 17 when he asks that the Father, that the love that the Father has for the Son would be in us, that we're able to experience that type of relationship with God. But the answer for this evening really comes down to, well, this is how God describes himself, particularly in his word. So we must trust what the Bible says. Now, this takes us back to what we began as we started through these questions and answers when we talked about the reliability, the authority, the inspiration, and the inerrancy of Scripture. Right? We can trust the Bible. We can trust the Bible more than we can trust any other thing on the face of this planet. We can trust the Bible, we must trust the Bible more than we even trust ourselves. Psalm 33, 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. This passage describes for us the trustworthiness, the faithfulness of God's word. And again, notice what he says. The word of the Lord is upright. This term for upright comes from a root word that means straight. God's word is not like 
the thinking and the, and the ways of men which are crooked. All right, if you, if you think about where, just look back over the last, you can just look back over the last three years at the different responses from supposedly man's wisdom to how to deal with the COVID-19 epidemic. Was there, was there ever a clear straight line? Like, yes, this is clearly what we must do. No. Stuff changed left and right all the time. Now, I'm not necessarily faulting the government officials who did that I, I, because they were dealing with things in real time. They, really, they obviously did not have the wisdom of God for this. And so they did the best they could with what they had, but there were certainly mistakes made. Even to this day, they're still revising um, uh, recommendations and revising things that they're seeking to say. And, and that's all I'm saying is all the stipulations and, and on something as, as, as serious, but yet not nearly as consequential as our eternal souls, all of those things were a crooked path. We're going this way one way. Oh, no, we're going this other way. I mean, things were constantly in flux and change. But when we come to God's word, it stands firm. It is a straight line. It is upright. There's no variance or, sh or shade of change. There's no, there's no trying to adjust because there's a lack of knowledge. God's word is upright. And because God's word is upright, because it doesn't adjust with the times, that means that it is dependable. We can bank on it. We can trust on it. And what's also interesting is not only is God's word dependable, but it is also effective. This, this uh, psalmist uses a, a, uh, um, a Hebrew literary device known as parallelism. In fact, Almost any time you read poetry in the Old Testament, whether it be in Psalms or Proverbs, in the prophets, um, whether it be even in some of the historical books, in Genesis, uh, there is this, this, this uh, principle of Hebrew literature known as parallelism. And essentially what it is is parallelism is two phrases that are somehow connected. And so there's different types of parallelism. So like there may be the connection between two phrases in a statement may be that they're um, antithetical to each other. They contradict each other. And that's what we call antithetical um, uh, parallelism. And what I mean by contradicting is not that they contradict each other so that what's being said is, is nonsensical, but rather one statement is made and then the opposite statement is made to make a point. It's a, it's a literary device. Uh, sometimes it leads to a climax so that there's a building of these things. Sometimes the, the second statement explains the first so, for instance, as the deer pants for the water, all right, so pants my soul for you. And so there's an emblem, an illustration, if you will, a deer panting for water. And then that illustration is being used to apply to us as the desire that we should have for God, that he is, he is the very source of life for us. We desire him for satisfaction. Um, but this one uses probably one of the most common forms of parallelism, and that is synonymous parallelism. So that, that essentially the, the, the meaning of the two phrases is repeated for emphasis. And we have that here. The word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. Now, what's interesting with parallelism like this, particularly synonymous parallelism, is that you can, there's a transitive property so that you can, you can adjust and apply 
the truth of one phrase to the, uh, the corresponding truth in the other phrase. Are right, you following me? I, ho I hope you're with me. I know this is a little confusing, but just look at the passage. Word is the subject of the first phrase, so what's the subject of the second phrase? Work. And so that this, this transitive property, that they're the same thing, God's word is also his work. So that when God speaks, it accomplishes something. And we know this in Scripture. What does God say about His Word? His Word never returns void, empty to Him. So when we come to the Word of God, not only are we coming to a Scripture, not only coming to a book that tells us that which is true and right and dependable, that's a great objective reality, but the subjective experience is that the Word of God accomplishes the work of God in our hearts. It does something to us. And really, I would say that this is, the, this is the way in which we are able to know and experience the difference of the Bible from any other book. Now, there are certainly books that you've probably read or, or things that you've seen that maybe have moved you. But I doubt that any book, if you're truly a Christian, I doubt that any book has had the influence and the change on your life that the Scriptures have. That's why, that's why the scriptures describe it as the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. That's why it is, it is that which provides um, water and sustenance for us in this life. It does something to us. And so if God's word, which is dependable and is effective, if God's word tells us that God is a trinity, three in one, then not only is it true, but it also has an application for our everyday life. So what I'd like us to do for the rest of the time this evening is to establish, does the Bible teach that there is one God, but yet there are three persons of this one God? And if it does, then based upon Psalm 33, 4, we can understand that it is true, it is right, and we can also understand that that truth is a work of God to be wrought within us and to affect us. So let's establish biblical Trinitarianism. Now I think, and again, some of this is going to be a little bit of review because we've already sort of hit on some of this. Scripture does describe three persons as God. Right? It describes the Father as God. Malachi chapter 2 verse 10, have we not all one Father? Has not one what? God created us. Now, notice the application here of this truth. There's the truth, all right? We can take it to the bank. There is the Father, and He is one God. And then the question is, well, why in the world are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Why are we fighting against what God has called us to do in loving our neighbor as ourselves? That's the point Malachi is making here. It's like... Essentially, when you rise up against your neighbor, you're seeking to, to push and promote disunity. And yet we all come from one Father, one God. We're all a part of, particularly the people of God, are all a part of His family. Why are we sowing discord? That's the, that's the action, that's the work of God, that the truth of God, that there is one God and one Father is to do before us. In the New Testament, Paul speaks of how, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. 
Now, again, we see the clear indication, both Old Testament and Malachi and New Testament here with Paul, that Paul is recognizing the Father as God. He is bowing before him in an act of worship, in an act of reverence, in an act of fear before him, giving to the Father that which only God is worthy to receive. So we have two passages that describe the Father as God. Now, the second passage is where we want to establish that the Son is also God. And to do this, in the Old Testament, we're going to, serve, we're going to turn to Psalm 2. Now, my question for you. I know it's the middle of the week. All right? I know it's Wednesday. I know it's 7.09. I know you're looking forward and you're thinking 20 more minutes, or with Pastor Phil, maybe 30 more minutes of us having to deal with this. And maybe you just want to sit back and, and relax. That's great. I don't want you to do that. I need you to put your thinking caps on. Because I, I want to sort of take a little rabbit trail. I want to dive down um, a bit of a, a deep crevice and seek to explain Scripture so that we can understand how, particularly in the midst of objections made to what Scripture says, how we can stand on the truth that the Son is God. Psalm 2, 11 through 12. Serve who with fear? The Lord. Now, notice Lord is in all capitals, right? So what does that mean then? When it's in all capitals, it's referring to what? The Lord God, but, but in, in, in particular, it's referring to what we call the tetragrammaton. Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the covenant name of God, I am. So whenever you see that in your Bibles, when capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's referring to the covenant name of God, that the name that he has for his people, Yahweh. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss who? The Son. Now, I'm going to argue that what the psalmist is doing here, again, looking at parallelism, that same connection that, the, that Yahweh and Son are connected so that they're the same thing, we can make the statement that this is a passage that upholds the deity of the Son, that the Son of God is Yahweh. He is the God that exists. Now, Here's, and just very quickly, the application of that. There's the truth. The application is we need to do this because if we don't, if we turn away from God, he will be angry with us. His wrath is quickly kindled, and the only way that we can find blessedness is by taking refuge in him, not looking to our own ways. Now, I was studying this, and I pulled out... Um, a, I have a three-volume translation of the Old Testament by a Hebrew scholar named Robert Alter. Robert Alter is not a believer, but he is one of the premier Hebrew experts in the world today. This is how he translated Psalm 2, uh, particularly this phrase, kiss the sun. Instead of saying kiss the sun, he says, with purity be armed. Okay. So what are we to do? How are we to, how are we to work through what is, what is happening there? Um, because it, honestly, if you talk to somebody who's done work, you've talked to, to 
to Jewish scholars, you talk to somebody who's maybe even just done a little bit of research, and you were to point to this as an indication of the deity of the Son in the Old Testament, they would say, yeah, well, that's been translated wrong, and this is how it should be translated. So how would you answer them? Right? It's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. Okay. Right. Okay. So, so th- you're, that's absolutely right. That that's a, that's a reality of. Right. Right. So, so first of all, I think that's that, that's the right. That's what you tell yourself. All right. Instead of telling them, that's what you tell yourself. You say. Say, this person doesn't have the spirit, there's, and, and maybe you don't have the answer. And that's okay. It's okay for you not to have the answer. But, you, but what you can say, well, there's a reason why, and this is, this is, the, this is sort of the, the answer that I would say would be the best thing. There's a reason why many English translations translate it, kiss the sun. Now, he's going to come back and he's going to say, yeah, every one of those English translations is a Christian translation. And at that point, you say, well, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll see that. And then that's where I would back down. I'd say, I'm not really a Hebrew expert. All I know is that there are good reasons why it's translated. I would like to help you understand what the good reasons are. All right? So now, not, not so that you can get ready to jump into a fight with a Hebrew scholar. I wouldn't do that. But I think sometimes it's helpful for us, particularly on, when we have the opportunity here um, on Wednesday evenings, we have a little bit more time to, to diverge a little bit, to, to help you think through these things so that it can demonstrate that somebody who has this, this knowledge maybe came to a wrong conclusion. And here's the thing. We live in a world that's filled with experts, and we trust experts. Can experts be wrong? Yes. And we have to keep that in mind. So let's, let's well, are, are you ready to jump down the, the rabbit hole with me? All right. Yes. My son. So that. So. Right. So it's. All right. So you're getting ahead of me. You're getting. That's all right. That's all right. That's a good question. That's a good question. Right. 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 That's a good question, and and we'll get there. So let's let's look at this kiss. The sun. How do we have such divergent translations? Kiss the sun or arm yourself with um, purity. <laughs> Completely different. How do we get there? Well, what I did was I said, well, let me look at some other translations of this. Um, so the first translation I went to was the translation that Jesus used, which is known as the Septuagint. Um, this is what the Septuagint and, and I, I was expecting to see certain Greek words, and I was expecting to say, ah, got him. You know what the Septuagint says? Lay hold of discipline. What? So now, now we have an even bigger issue to some extent. Um, what, is, what is going on here? Now, lay hold of discipline. You can see how it can correlate with the idea of arming yourself with purity. There's, there's moral moral um, ideals that you're seeking to do, and, and by laying hold of them or putting them on, there's sort of a, uh, a similarity there. So I'm like, well, let me, uh, let me go to the Vulgate, all right? And I don't know Latin, and I'm thankful that we live in a world in which you can just go to Google Translate and put in the Latin phrase, and it tells you what it means. 
Uh, but this one, this one I bet you you can probably figure out just by the way it sounds. Apprehendite disciplinium. What do you think that sounds like? Apprehend what? Discipline, all right? Um, grasp discipline or grasp learning there. So the two translations, the ancient translations that I was looking to, I was like, okay, we're still having a problem. But yet there must be some reason why the King James translators or Tyndale translated this, or as we were to look back even further in time, you can look at the commentaries of Calvin and Beza before even some of these translations came out, and they also recognized that this said, kiss the sun. So why? What's going on here? Well, the Hebrew, it's just Hebrews, it's just two Hebrew terms, all right? Nashuk, uh, and I'm going to be terrible with my pronunciation here, Nashku bar, all right? Two words, Nashku bar. And this is, as, and what's great about this guy, Alter, is in the footnotes of his translation, he tells you why he translated it this way. Now, he begins by saying that, that the translation, this is one instance in the Psalms of many others that are going to come, where the actual translation is not always very clear. Now, he does, he does admit this, all right? He does admit this first word, nash, nashku, nash. Nashku, right? Again, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Gesundheit, right? Um, he does say that that term most commonly is used to refer to kiss, all right? However, there are three instances in the Hebrew Bible, um, one in Psalm 78, and then one in First Chronicles and one in Second Chronicles, where it refers to a, um, a soldier or a person taking up a bow and, and taking on armory in that sense, particularly referring to a bow. Now, I have my own theories as to why that is the case, but those are just theories. I'm not going to get into it. I'm just going to say there are three places in Scripture where this term for um, kiss is used to refer to the idea of arming oneself. And the King James and every other Christian uh, translation translates those three verses as arm. But the majority of the times you come across this Hebrew term, it refers to kiss. Um, now, now how, do you make the how do you make the determination? Should it be kiss or should it be armor or arm yourself? And I would generally say that unless the context tells you something differently, you should probably go with the most commonly used term, which would be kiss. However, Alter does not do that. He chooses to go with the term arm. He has his reasons, and I don't know. We'll see if we have time to get into his reasons. Um, but nonetheless, um, he brings that, brings that out. Now, the question, the other question is, is it sun or is it virtue or purity? Which, which is it? And this is where we get to have some fun, and you get to learn a little bit about the Hebrew language, all right? You ready to learn a little bit about the Hebrew language? So, in English, we have two different types of letters, right? What are the two different types of letters we have in our English alphabet? Consonants and vowels, all right? Consonants and vowels. In Hebrew, guess what we have? Huh? Consonants. No vowels. Now, that's a little bit oversimplified. There are some Hebrew consonants that act as vowels. 
So for instance, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, often acts like the letter A. Um, but generally, Hebrew is written just with the consonants laid, consonants laid out. So it would be something like this. And, and, and th this is like we say, well, how would anyone ever be able to understand just consonants? It's easier than you think. Can you read this? But there's no vowels here. But can you make out what this says? Who thinks they know what it says? All right, Ben? All right, decide or decode, right, meaning, right? So you can read this and get the sense out of it. Um, let's do it again. What does this one say? What, what was it? All right, so with small effort, or with some effort, um, we can read sentences that are missing 90% of the vowels, all right? So again, we, so it's not so unusual for a language to be just consonant, consonant I want to say continental, but that's not the right term, Cons, consonantal. I don't even know if that's a term or not, but anyways, we can, well, that works, all right? And Hebrew work like this. Now here's the problem. Hebrew does not look, Hebrew letters look nothing like English letters, right? And also, you're not reading from right to left in Hebrew. You're reading from left, or you're reading from right to left. Right to left, not left to right. Yeah, you're reading from right to left instead of left to right like we do in English. Um, so this, this is how Hebrew was originally written. Now, what's interesting is that as, we, as you guys described reading these phrases, there were some different ideas. Is it with some effort, which would fit, or is it with small effort, which would fit? So, so you can see how some words, depending on what vowel you put in there, can have a different meaning. So let, let me give you an example of this, just sort of put out there. Um, what, does, what does this, what do you guys think this says? No vowels. All right, I'm going, to put you, I'm going to put out there what I wanted it to say, all right? The cat ran up the tree, all right? But it could also read, the cut ran up the tree. Now, which one do you think is correct? Well, is it, is it possible that a cut can run up a tree? All right, is it also possible that a cat can run up a tree? All right, so I'm, I'm just pointing this out to say that depending on what vowel you choose to put in there, it's going to change the meaning of the word, whether it's cut or whether it's cat. All right, that is what's going on with the Hebrew term used here for son. All right, um, the Hebrew word for son is either um, bar or bore, B-A-R or b O R. Now B A R, or, and and in the manuscript, you know what it is. B and R. We have to supply the vowel that's going to make the term what it is. So what what Alter chooses to do 
is he chooses to say that this is B-O-R rather than B-A-R. All right. And the reason he chooses that is he says that that seems to make more sense because the term B-A-R, bar, is actually in Hebrew not that commonly used to refer to sun. But B-O-R refers to purity. Now, to your question about when he says, you are my son, it's a different word. It's the word bene. So it's, it's, a, it's a completely different term there. Um, so what is, how do we make the determination as to which vow we should use? Because for centuries, all the way back to the Reformation, people have been, and I would say even before this, you can look at, you can see even some, some, um, some, some commentaries before the Reformation, where people look at this and they say that it's referring to kiss the sun, not arm yourself with virtue or purity. So how do we make the decision? What do you think? Which is right? Is it unknowable? Oh, it's not unknowable. I'll tell you that. <clears throat> well, he could have said both things. And I... <clears throat> Right. But that but and I, I, I agree with you, but that view is still shaded by a Christian theology, which there's nothing wrong with that. All right. And we need to be very clear that Alter is not operating from a Christian worldview. He's operating from a Jewish worldview and also a secular worldview. So he really has no skin in the game. And actually, he's often trying to. Although he doesn't do this overtly, he's often trying to pull back the messianic aspects of who Christ is. So which is the right way? And, th and this is how you find out. Um, let's go back to my example of the cat running up the tree or the cut running up the tree. I think how we determine whether it's cut, cat, or cut is going to be determined on what I said before this. So if, if this was a part of a of a, of, a, of a paragraph where I was saying, I went home, my cat ran outside, I chased my cat outside, and then you see these, this top line, well, what are you going to assume that the, that the right word is for CT? Why? Because what was I talking about beforehand? The cat, all right? If I were to say, I, when I got home tonight, I went inside, I got my chainsaw, or I got my axe, and I started hacking at my tree, and when what you are going to think is the right one? The cut ran up the tree. So context is what helps us to determine which vow we should use in this, which, which word makes more sense. And then the, here's, here's the reason why I think that, sir, that kiss the sun makes more sense than arm yourself with purity. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Both of those two phrases are referring to an, an attitude and a focus on God, not on something else, not on purity or some other idea. And so when he says these things, particularly understanding that the, the point he's making is that the Son is God and that we must come before him paying homage to this king which is what is throughout this psalm. It is a coronation psalm. It makes a lot more sense in context than I'm going to arm myself with purity. Because the, it is a coronation 
psalm. It is speaking of the kingship of Christ. You are, I, I've set my king on my holy hill, he says in Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so it begins with these raging nations who are seeking to overthrow God. And so how are they to fix their rebellion? Kiss the son. The one whom God has exalted. The one whom God has set on as his king. Not try to live a pure life. That doesn't make sense in the context of the psalm. So, all that to say, if you come across somebody who would argue with you about this passage, you bring up this, you're sharing the gospel with somebody, or, or you hear somebody talking about this and saying, oh, this, is, this has been mistranslated. There are legitimate reasons why it is translated, kiss the sun. And those, those reasons go back to the original languages. It's not even just about a theological conclusion. Now, beyond that, there also is the, the context of the scripture itself, which also understanding that this means kiss the sun recognizes a more uh, a, an understanding and a reading of this passage that is more in line with the theology of the entire Bible. Okay, we went down the rabbit hole. Are you still with me, or did you get lost by Alice when you ate some of that stuff and you got too big, or you got too small, right? Do you understand? Any questions about that? Was it, was it helpful to sort of show the different consonants and understand how, how that sort of works its way out there? So anyways, all that to say, this passage, I think, clearly in the Old Testament refers to the deity of the Son of God. It clearly makes that description. And then in, in John 5, 22 through 23, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who? The Son. That all may, and this is key, all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Does God give his glory to anyone? He reserves that for himself. And yet here is Jesus saying that the Son of God is worthy of the same honor as the Father. So this is a clear statement that the Son is God. And then in the Old Testament, we have this reality. David speaking of how the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh speaks through him. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. So as, as David speaks, it is the Spirit enabling him to speak the words of who? So that means that the Spirit is what? God. And of course, 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are whose temple? God's temple. And if you're God's temple, then who is it that dwells within you? He doesn't say, and God dwells within you. Who does he say dwells within you? The Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So these passages clearly establish three individuals' persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as God. Now, Scripture describes these three persons not as three different gods, but as one God. And I just want to quickly go through some passages that, that pull all three of them together. Isaiah 61.1. This is a prophecy about Christ, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Spirit, Lord God, Yahweh Father, 
me, the Son. All three are recognized as acting in union together, as being together. We see this reality lived out in Matthew chapter 3. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, the Father, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We have all three individuals acting in union in the baptism of Jesus Christ. But all of that, I think the strongest passage in Scripture is 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Whereas Paul closes his last letter to the Corinthians, he prays for them to have a relationship with God, in particular the three persons of the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And this is what's remarkable. Remember we said that God's word is dependable and it's true, but it also does something to us. You realize that if you are in Christ, if you have faith in him, you have these things, these realities with you all the time. If you're united to Christ and you have a relationship with God, you have God's grace upon you always. That you have the love of God. That love which is eternal and unending. And that you are able to fellowship with Father and Son through the work of the Holy Spirit that's in you. So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three come together to show the Trinity at work within us. That should do something to us. It's not just a cold fact. The Trinity is not just an, an ethereal idea that we hold in our heads. It is the very essence of our life day in and day out as we live by the grace of the Son, in the love of the Father, in, through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So why must we believe that God is one God and three persons, each of whom are fully God? Because God describes himself as a trinity in his word. I've sought to demonstrate that this evening. I hope I've done that. And so if that's what the Bible says, and the Bible is reliable, it's upright, its work is done in faithfulness, then we should trust it, right? So praise the Lord. This is who our God is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. May we take what we've learned here today and not just simply fill our minds with truth, but may we live under the reality that you are Father, Son, and Spirit, and that we relate to you, the one God, through each of these three persons. And we take this truth with us as we go from this place tonight. We pray this all in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.